you know, I don't know about you, but I, I love rescue movies. Maybe it's uh, you know, Ron Howard's Apollo 13 or The, the Martian starring um, uh, Matt Damon or Captain Phillips with Tom Hanks. I think some of my favorites, though, are like Toy Story. They go, Buzz goes in and rescues his friend. And then the later ones, vice versa. In 2008, there was a movie that came out. It was entitled Taken. It was a story of a man's daughter that was kidnapped over in Europe. She was drugged and sold as a slave for pleasure. The father, an ex-CIA agent, travels to Europe from the U.S. to really to bring judgment and to enact justice upon those kidnappers and all of those there in that trafficking ring. He personally takes out numerous people involved as he searches for his daughter. There at the end, he, he has tracked her down to a, a ship that is traveling off with her. And he runs after her and he jumps onto this moving boat She's being held, and he lethally brings his wrath upon all the bad guys there, and he rescues his daughter. And when it's all over, she looks at her dad, and she runs to him and just falls into his arms. Daddy, you came for me. You know, in a much grander and glorious way, God comes to rescue his children. He rescues us from the chains of sin's slavery. And he'll bring judgment and will enact justice upon every object of evil. You know, when our deliverance is complete, we will fall into our Father's arms in endless and loving adoration. We sang about that earlier. A bride falling into the Father's arms. You know, this is our hope. And we'll see today in our text that this is our hope fulfilled. Sermon this morning, it's, it's really the third in a series that we've entitled Songs of Praise. The first, the first one, Ryan Trogland preached, it was out of, uh, out of Ezra chapter 3. And the people of Israel had left the Babylonian captivity and they returned to Jerusalem, their home, their home country. And they were, the first thing that they did was to reestablish. They built the altar there because they wanted to get sacrifices going every morning and evening. Again, offering, offering that up to the Lord. Then the next thing they did is they laid the foundation of the temple. And when they had completed that, that work, they joined together in praise and thanks to God, saying, For He is good. His steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. A new hope had dawned. Salvation would come. Then last week, we turned to the Christmas story, particularly to the Song of Mary. She praises God, not just because she was the one bearing the, or carrying the Son of God, but really because God was fulfilling His promise of salvation. The dawning of hope was 
now at, at the brightness of high noon. Hope incarnate. Salvation had come. This morning we move to the last book of the Bible and to the specific song that's found in Revelation chapter 15. Redemptive history is coming to a close with God's judgment being poured out upon all who have turned against Him. Hope is at last fulfilled. Salvation is complete. If you have your Bibles, turn to to Revelation chapter 15. If you're using one of the red pew Bibles there in front of you there in the seat back, it's on page, I believe, 10... 1036. It's a short chapter. Actually, it's the shortest chapter in the book of Revelation. It's only eight verses. I want you to follow along as I read. Revelation chapter 15. This is John speaking. He says, Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing. Seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last. For with them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire. And also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name, they were standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you for your righteous acts have been revealed. After this, I looked, and the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was opened, and out of the sanctuary came seven angels with the seven plagues, clothed in pure bright linen with golden sashes around their chests. And one of the the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke for the, from the glory of God and from His power. And no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. The author of Revelation had been exiled there to the island of Patmos. It's a desolate volcanic island. It's about Ten, 10 miles long and about six miles wide. Uh, Roman prisoners were often banished uh, to islands like Patmos. The writer, the author of Revelation is, is John. And according to Revelation 1.9, we read that John was deported to this island, deported to Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Likely, he was, he was sent there under the order of a Pretty ruthless ruler of Rome, Domitian. And while on the island, he receives a a vision from the Lord. And he's told to write down what he sees in a book. 
and then to send it to the seven churches there in, in Asia, probably a circular letter that, would, that traveled around. See, Revelation is about the culmination of, of God's redemptive plan. Satan and, and all of his dominion are crushed. Christ is exalted, and those who reject Christ are judged. Those who belong to Christ are brought into their eternal rest where God will dwell with them, and he will, he will be their God, and they will forever be his people. We see the, these themes in our passage today. In fact, this chapter can be outlined in the, really the following three sections. In verses 1 and 2 is God's justice. God's justice. In, in verses 3 and 4, you see God's character. And in verses 5 through 8, you see God's glory. Just succinctly try to bring this chapter to a single main idea. This is what I would say. The consummation of God's judgment fuels our praise and fulfills our hope. The consummation of God's judgment, it fuels our praise and fulfills our hope. And this main idea is going to serve kind of as our main three points of our message. God's judgment finds its end. Number two, God's judgment fuels our praise. And lastly, God's judgment fulfills our hope. So first, God's judgment finds its end. What a way to end the year to preach on God's judgment. (laughs) What do you think of when you hear the word judgment? What comes to mind? I think many times it's it's kind of thought of in a, in a negative way. Not just maybe God's just, but judgment on a whole. You hear things like, uh, you shouldn't judge others. Or don't be so judgmental. Or, or something like, who are you to judge what's right or wrong? You know, statements like these tend to, tend to make us see uh, the term judgment in kind of a negative and very, very... Um, Oh, demeaning way. Yet I think our problem isn't so much with, with judgment as it is with the, with the person who has the authority to, to render judgment. We don't think that that person has the right or the authority to speak judgment upon us or to speak that into our lives. In other words, when people say you shouldn't judge others, what they're really saying is, hey, you don't have the authority to judge me. So don't do it. But if you move into a courtroom where we know that the jury or the judge has been given authority, and when he renders a judgment, and I mean it, it comes with that authority. We receive it, and we go, okay, that's that's good. That's that's okay. See, judgment must be it must be in a sense rooted in injustice. It's got to be rooted in justice. Ultimate judgment must come from an ultimate authority. So so judgment must be rooted in justice, and justice must be rooted in, really, God's character. 
Does that make sense? God is good. He's faithful. He's pure. We've sung about it. He's holy. He's just. He will never show partiality, nor will he be unfair. 2 Chronicles 17.9, listen to this. It says, now then, let, let the fear of the Lord be upon you. Be careful what you do, for there's no injustice with the Lord our God or partiality or taking bribes. You know, there are places in the world where, I mean, judges are bought off and bribe, bribery takes place and you just, it just becomes, it comes corrupt. We prayed for Bangladesh earlier. There's a lot of things in just happening there. But with God, his character demands. He's the ultimate authority. He's the one who's determined what truth is. And he can rightly bring judgment. He cannot be unjust. Otherwise, he wouldn't be God. Because he's holy, he cannot ignore sin or evil. Because he's just, he must bring judgment upon evil and sin. Because of his very character, God will bring judgment upon the wicked and bring reward to the righteous. It's who God is. I think Romans 2, verses 4 through 11, really kind of bring all this truth right to the forefront. Listen to what Paul says. Or do you presume on the riches of God's kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you're storing up wrath for yourselves on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. So as we walk through our text, we'll see God's wrath and judgment unleashed upon the wicked. We must see that within the context of his character. See, to consider God's ways unfair or unjust is to remove him from his throne and then for us to go and to sit upon that throne that is his. Now, throughout the, throughout the book of John, he sees, we see this vision of God's judgment and wrath coming. In fact, in verse 1, you see it. There's, that John says, he calls it great and amazing. He says, then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues. You know, throughout the book of Revelation, I mean, God's judgment is it's just being poured out with increasing intensity. In chapters 6 and 8, 6 through 8, the seven seals uh, bring forth the, the Antichrist and 
war and pestilence and death and martyrdom, earthquakes, darkness. Then it moves into chapters 8 through 11 and the seven trumpets. They bring forth scorching fire and seas turned into blood, waters turned to bitter, darkness and bodily torment and death. And then in this chapter, we're introduced to these seven angels with seven plagues. You look down in verse verse 7. We see the four living creatures, that these guardian, guardians of the throne, they're, they're given these seven angels, seven bowls of the wrath of God. Chapter 16, these bowls are, are being poured out. Listen to how one scholar describes this aspect of God's judgment. He says, it's a time of tremendous upheaval and unprecedented suffering. The land, sea, and inland waters and solar system all bear the impact of God's wrath. People gnaw their tongues in agony and incited by demons, the kings of the whole earth prepare for the final battle. And when the seventh bowl is poured out, a voice from heaven declares that the plagues have run their course and we stand now on the threshold of eternity. The entire cosmos is in turmoil. A storm theophany fills the air. The world collapses under a great earthquake and gigantic hailstones fall from the sky. The wrath of God has run its full course. Now, some of these movies today, you see this cataclysmic disasters happening on the earth. Those don't even compare to what the wrath of God is soon to bring. God's just judgments and pouring out his wrath upon the wicked are, I mean, they're just overwhelming. They're great and amazing, John describes. But they're also right, true, and good. Think back to the Israelites. They were, they were in bondage to the, to the Egyptians They were dehumanized and thought of only in terms of slave labor. But God raised up a deliverer, the man Moses, one who would lead his people out of slavery into the the joy of the promised land. Moses went to Pharaoh and asked him to let my people go, to go into this land that God was going to give them. What did Pharaoh do? He said no. In fact, he, he brought even harsher conditions upon, upon the people, increased the burden of their labor. So God begins to bring judgment on the people of, of Egypt in the form of plagues, much like the place we just talked about. The Nile is turned to blood and Frogs, gnats, flies, and locusts bring all kinds of devastation. Livestock are killed. The people suffer these tremendous boils. Destructive hail falls from the sky. Darkness engulfs the area. Death comes to all the firstborn of the Egyptian families. So Pharaoh finally relents, and the people of Israel head to the promised land via the the Sinai Desert. 
The only problem is they, as they get there, or as they make their way there, there's a Red Sea. Moses lifts up his staff. God parts the waters, and they travel to the other side on dry land. Pharaoh has a turn of heart. He, he sends his entire army after the Israelites. And as they're passing through, He shows them his judgment and wrath by bringing the waters down upon the the armies, killing them all. So then as the Israelites, they are standing there on the banks of the Red Sea. The bodies of the Egyptian soldiers are washing up on the shore. They saw God's great and amazing judgment. Verse 2 of and the Revelation says, And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. Here's the, an, another sea. It's a beautiful, it's a beautiful sea. It looks like crystal or glass. And it's mingled with the fire of God's judgment. Standing there on the banks of this sea are all those who have conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name. These are they're the redeemed of the Lord. And how did these saints overcome the political, religious, and economic persecution of the day? How did they conquer the beast? Well, Revelation 22, or 12.22 says that they... They conquered him. They've conquered him by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. For they loved not their lives even unto death. The day is coming when all the redeemed of the Lord, many who've even given their lives for the sake of the gospel, will stand there on the shores of this glassy sea and will witness God's great and amazing judgment. What will make that day even more glorious is that it will be God's ultimate and final judgment. Look again, verse 1. These angels who who come with these seven plagues, they are the last. For with them the wrath of God is finished. God's judgment finds its end. Evil, death, and Human injustice will be dealt with under God's good and perfect justice. I'm quoting uh, the 19th century clergyman Theodore Parker, Martin Luther King Jr. He said, evil may so shape events that Caesar will occupy a palace and Christ a cross. But that same Christ will rise up and split history into A.D. and B.C., so that even the life of Caesar must be dated by his name. Yes, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. The justice of God is is coming. The wicked will know his judgment, and the righteous, oh, they will know his mercy. Those Israelites standing on the banks, they saw God's judgment upon the wicked, 
And they knew his mercy. They knew his deliverance. The redeemed of the Lord will one day stand on the banks of that, that glassy sea. They'll see God's judgment unfold. And they will take hold of God's mercy and deliverance. Just like the plagues were a sign of the Egyptians of God's power and judgment and to Israel of God's mercy and deliverance, these revelation plagues will be a sign to the wicked of God's power and his final judgment. And then to all who, who come under the blood of Christ through his redeeming work on the cross, they're going to be a, a joyous reminder of God's beautiful mercy, his grace his covenant, his love. You know, maybe, maybe you've experienced some form of injustice. Maybe you've experienced, you've seen it, you've felt it, the hands of another. Drunk driver that's taken the life of a family member or a friend somehow gets off lightly. cancer or some other disease that it just doesn't seem fair. Former spouse refusing to pay child support. Today in this Me Too generation, uh, our attention has been lifted to sexual abuse. And one in four women, one in seven men will be victims of violent abuse. Think about this. Every minute 20 people are physically abused every minute. One in five women will be raped in their lifetime. And many, many of these cases go unreported. And with these statistics alone, probably in this room, there are some who are victims of this kind of injustice. You know, Revelation 15 reminds us that God sees the injustice and he will one day render judgment. And because he's good, because he's loving and caring and kind, because he's faithful and holy, because he's just, he will bring you and all who know him as Lord and Savior to the joy of his glorious mercy as his justice and his judgment falls upon the wicked. Trust him. Rest in him. Fall into his arms. 1 Peter 5, 6-7 says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Casting all your anxieties, all of your cares, all of your hurts. Cast it upon him because he cares for you. God's judgment finds its end. This brings us to our second point. God's, God's judgment fuels our praise. It fuels our praise. As the Israelites are standing there on the eastern shore of the Red Sea after witnessing God's mighty hand of judgment, Moses leads them in this great song of 
this great song of praise that, that Sam read to us earlier. Let me just highlight a couple things here. Since then Moses and the people of Israel sang the song to the Lord. They had just witnessed God's mighty hand come down. They had just been delivered from, from their slavery. And they had the promise and the hope of a promised land. And they're standing there and they break forth into this song. I will sing to the Lord for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength. He is my song. He has become my salvation. Oh, this is my God. I will praise him. My father's God. I will exalt him. Oh, the Lord's a man of war. The Lord is his name. Who's like you, O oh Lord, among the gods? Who's like you? Majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders. You stretched out your right hand. The earth swallowed them. You bring them in and plant them on your own mountain. The place, O oh Lord, which you have made for your abode, your dwelling, your presence. The sanctuary, O Lord, where, which your hands have established, the Lord will reign forever and ever. What a song. In 1977, English rock band Queen wrote a song entitled, We Are the Champions. Anybody heard that one before? I remember being a part of a, a little league team. It was all-stars there in Lake Jackson, Texas. I guess I was 12 years old, and we were, um, we were playing the, the city of Clute, and they had a guy named Gus Campos. He was, I think he was six foot nine, weighed 320, and he could throw a mean fastball. You know, so we go into this thing with fear and intrepidation, and man, he, he was throwing fire, but somehow we, we rallied and, and beat them. David beating Goliath. And as we're leaving, we're singing the song, We are the champions. You ever been there? You know what I'm talking about? You just feel it. And it's like, yes! There was another time I was on the golf team in, in high school. In our junior year, we, were, um, we had just won the, the district tournament against our arch rivals up in Houston. We were playing on their course, which made it even more sweet. And we get into the bus, and guess what we do? We break out in song. We are the champions, my friends. We'll keep fighting till the end. We are the champions. We are the champions. No time for losers. Because we are the champions of the world. <laughs> oh. You know, this, this song of Moses... Here in Exodus 15, it's, it's quite the opposite of Queen's song. There's no we mentioned in this. There's no self-glory. We are the champions of the world. No, all the attention is given to God's glorious triumph. It exalts his name and his character and his deeds. Look with me there at the response of the redeemed in Revelation 15. Verse 2 says that they're standing beside this sea of glass with harps of God. They witness God's final judgment 
And then he, he hands them these instruments of, of praise. In verse 3 it says, And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. What is their song of praise? It's, it's the song of Moses and the, the song of the Lamb. See, most, so I was reading, most scholars believe that the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb that John mentions are actually the same song. The song of Moses is actually pointing toward the deliverance and salvation provided through Christ upon the cross. So maybe it could even be translated something like this. And they sang or they sing the song of Moses. That is the song of the Lamb. And though the song is not word for word the song of Moses, but in the same way it exalts his name, his character, his deeds. Look how God's judgment fuels their praise. Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All the nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. Again, these words, great and amazing, are used. But here they're referring to God's God's deeds and his ways. This parallelism, parallel lines there, those four lines there, verse 3. We see that God's work, his ways, his deeds, his will and judgments, they're great and amazing and they're just and true. He is the Lord God Almighty. He is the King of the nation. It's his authority, his might, power and dominion and reign They have no rival. They have no comparison. He alone is God. He alone is to be praised. And right there in the middle of this song, this question, who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? It's a a rhetorical question. We all know that answer. No one. Everyone is going to come and fear and, and bow down before this king. There's coming a day when, I mean, when at the, just the very name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and earth and under the earth. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory and praise of God. We sing a song here at UBC called uh, The Lion and the Lamb. Beautiful. I think it even ties into the song of Moses. Our God is the lion, the lion of Judah. He's roaring with power and fighting our battles. Every knee will bow before him. Our God is is the lamb, the lamb that was slain for the sins of the world. His blood breaks the chains and every knee will bow before the lion and the lamb. Every knee will bow before him. Our passage, it goes on to give three reasons why God's judgment fuels our praise. Three reasons why we, why we stand in awe and fear of, of our God and glorify his name. First, look there at verse 4. It says that God alone is holy. See, God, 
God is perfectly pure and purely perfect. He is forever sinless, set apart. For Samuel 2, 2 says, There is no, none holy like the Lord. There is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Psalm 99, 9. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his holy mountain. For the Lord our God is holy. Isaiah 5, 16. But the Lord of hosts is exalted in justice. And the holy God shows himself holy in righteousness. See, God alone is holy. And that fuels our praise. Second reason God's judgment fuels our praise to his glory is that all the nations will come to worship him. It's beautiful. Revelation 5.9 tells us that the, the blood of the Lamb has ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nations. God is saving a, a people for himself and his, his judgment will sift out all wickedness, leaving a, a pure and spotless bride. People made, made for himself, purchased by him from every tribe and language and nation. You know, here at UBC, we, we often pray, we, we long for our church to be richly diverse and, and unified, a unified worshiping body of believers. And one day, one day this prayer is going to be really exponentially answered, fulfilled. See, the day is going to be, we're going to gather around that throne with it will be glorious as we, with one voice, sing the song of Moses, which is the song of the Lamb. Every tribe, every nation. Can you imagine what that is going to look like? Third reason God's judgment fuels our praise to his glory is that his righteous acts have been revealed. Like Psalm 86 speaks of this one. It says, there's none like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. All the nations you've made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and will glorify your name. For you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. See, here's John. He's drawing our attention to, to the way that God acts. From his act of creation to his judgment with the flood from his act of deliverance with the Israelites out of bondage with the Egyptians to his judgment of the nations in the promised land, from the act of a, of a stone being implanted into the forehead of a Philistinian giant to the exile of the Israelites into Babylonian captivity, from a virgin being endowed with the Son of God to his wrath being poured out upon that very Son on the cross from the resurrection to the establishment of the church, from the plagues that we just read about being poured out on the people, to God ushering us in, his redeemed, into our eternal rest. All of God's acts, every one of these, everything there that God does is righteous. His acts are salvation story on display. Sometimes we read in the Old Testament and it's like, oh, that is hard. 
He goes in there and they just kill everything. Why? That doesn't make any sense. But all of his acts are good. They are right and they are just. Sometimes we don't always understand them. Some things, hap- things happen even in our own lives. It just don't make sense. But all of his acts, he is sovereignly in control. All of his acts are putting on display his glory. And even in cancer diagnoses, even when we've been hurt, even in the midst of racism, even in the midst of abuse and more, these things are awful. But God is in control. He is a good, just, and faithful God. The righteous acts are our eternal, eternal reward, and they are our song. So, church, we should worship and we should sing like no one else. Our worship should be boisterous and, and strong. We should be filled with joy and awe and with all of our heart, soul, and strength. We should sing, hallelujah, glory be to our great God. With all that's within us, we sing, behold him there, the risen lamb, my perfect, spotless righteousness, the great and changeable I am, the king of glory and of grace. And with passionate praise, we sing, behold our God. Seated on his throne, come, come let us worship, come let us adore him. Behold our king, nothing can compare. Come, let us adore him. Oh, his judgments, oh, how they should fuel our praise. Lastly, God's judgments fulfill our hope. God's judgment fulfills our hope. Let's read again, beginning there in verse 5. John writes, After this I looked in the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven. It was opened, and out of the sanctuary came the seven angels, the seven plagues, clothed in pure bright linen, with golden sashes around their chests. One of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of wrath of God, who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was Filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power, no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. We're again brought back to these seven angels. They're they're coming out of the sanctuary. They're in heaven. The very presence of God indicating that they are his emissaries. And they're clothed in such a way that it indicates that they're kind of fulfilling a priestly function. And they're given these seven bowls containing the wrath of God in the, the scene that unfolds. I mean, it's, it's just stunning. This, the holy of holies there in heaven, it's, it's filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And it's, it's so massive, it's so intense, no one can even enter. We've seen it before. Exodus 4, the smoke filled the the Holy of Holies there in the tabernacle in the wilderness. And Moses was unable to, to go in there. First Kings 8, King Solomon's temple is complete and they've, they've dedicated it unto the Lord. 
And the, the cloud of God's glory filled the temple and the priests, they couldn't stand to minister there in the midst. They had to back away. They could not go in to the cloud. Isaiah 6 Isaiah is there and he sees the Lord high and lifted up. The train of his robe fills the temple. And the seraphim are crying out ceasingly, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And the house of the Lord is filled with smoke. See, no one can come face to face with the presence of God and live. His holiness consumes everything that isn't equally holy. You need to catch the one word, I think, in this passage that, I mean, that changes everything. The one, the one word that brings hope. It says, no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues were finished. Until. In other words, when God's judgment is completed, man will dwell in the presence of his God. We will dwell with him. Hope is fulfilled. We read even further down in Revelation 21, 3, 4. It says, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with men. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Neither will be there mourning or crying or pain for the former things have passed away. His judgment will be finished. So this brings us really to a, I think, a significant question. When the day of God's justice is enacted, will you be facing his judgment are you, or will you be praising him for his mercy and deliverance? You see, because God is just, someone has to pay for your sin and mine. It cannot go unpunished. God wouldn't be just. And we can see from our lives numerous ways in which we rebel against God, pride and Unmerited anger, lies, deceit, lust, and on and on. All of these sins, they're just but a, a fruit of our sinful nature. We are sinners, and we sin because we're sinners. And sin before a holy God must be justly judged. The God in his infinite love, what does he do? He sends his son to be born in a manger, to live a life without ever sinning. And he became the perfect substitute for us by dying on the cross and taking the punishment for all who would turn from their sin and trust him as, as Savior and Deliverer. For those who repent and believe, they will one day enter into the presence of God and live forever. Yet those who continue to choose to reject his love will face will truly face his judgment. So hear me today. If you're here and you're not a follower of Christ, you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, I implore you, consider what God has done. Consider what is before you. 
Repent, believe, and take hold of a promise fulfilled. For those of you here this morning who've trusted in Christ as Savior and Lord, this passage, though dreadful, I mean, it should impact our lives and, and I think encourage us in several ways. I think first it should spur us on in our evangelism. When we see that this is coming, that this day is coming, how can we not share the gospel with our lost family members and friends? Oh, pray for boldness and courage. Don't be ashamed of the gospel. Go and tell. Oh, like I said, it should fuel our worship. Church, let us sing and engage with the, with the word with great rejoicing, knowing that we've been saved, knowing from what we've been saved from and to whom we have been saved for. Then lastly, be filled with hope. No matter what you've faced in the past, no matter what's, what you're going through in the present, know that it will, I mean, it will end. We'll soon see the goodness, grace, and mercy, and love, and faithfulness, and kindness, and care of God in all their perfection and glory. So fix your eyes on that day when our God says, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of, of salvation. This is hope fulfilled. Hope fulfilled. Let's pray. Father, to read about judgment, to pray about judgment, to preach about judgment, and I'm sure even to listen about judgment. It's, it's heavy. Yet, God, it's good and just and right, and it puts on display that you're a God who is great and mighty, just and true. You are a great God. You are the Lord God Almighty, King of the nations. Thank you for what you have done. Thank you that you are a good and just God and that justice will come. And we thank you for the hope that is ours in Christ. That one day you will bring us into our eternal, our eternal home to dwell with you. You, our God, and we, your people. We bless you and we praise you in Jesus' name.